Hello and welcome to today's reading of the Council Bluffs Daily Nonpareil for Wednesday, January the 17th, 2024. I'm your reader, Scott Splavik, and here's our first story. Red Cross asks for donations. Organization sees 20-year low in blood products. It's written by Joe Shearer of the Nonpareil. Winter is already a slow time for blood donations, but the American Red Cross says it's currently facing a 20-year low. The number of blood donors has fallen by 40% over the last two decades, the Red Cross said in a news release. The organization reported a 7,000-unit shortfall in donations between Christmas and New Year's Day alone. Reasons like this are why the Red Cross is asking for more donors to step up so life-saving surgeries and procedures aren't put on hold. Nikki Hill, a regional account manager for the Red Cross, was on site at Risen Sun, Risen Sun, excuse me, Presbyterian Church at the end of the December for a blood drive organized by the Abraham Lincoln High School Student Council. Hill worked with the AL students as part of the Red Cross's leadership, Leaders Save Lies scholarship program. Schools and student organizations are invited to organize and host blood drives throughout the year. The students' efforts do not only lead to much-needed blood units, but also earn them volunteer hours, teach them leadership skills, and get them entered to win scholarships and gift card incentives. Student organizers can earn gift cards based on the number of pints their blood drive brings in. They're also entered into different scholarship dollar amounts based on the donation numbers. Hill and said the Red Cross also hopes the Leaders Save Lives program also inspires them to take up a new life-saving hobby of giving blood. She said it's a great it's great working with the young, younger generation and seeing them want to make a positive impact on the world around them. It's actually amazing seeing the younger generation, the high school students, she said. There are a lot of them who are dedicated to meeting their goals but also helping save lives. Hill said that variables such as seasonal illness, inclement weather, and holiday travels are reasons the organization sees lower donor numbers in the winter months. Those wanting to make an appointment for blood donations can download the Red Cross Blood Donor app, call 1-800-RED-CROSS, that's 1-800-733-2767, or visit redcrossblood.org to find nearby blood drives. Those who come to give blood platelets or plasma in January will be entered for a chance to win a trip for two to Super Bowl 58 in Las Vegas through a partnership with the NFL to recognize National Blood Donor Month. Here's a list of upcoming blood drives. Thursday, January the 18th from 10 a.m. to 4 p.m. at Logan Magnolia High School, 1200 North 2nd Avenue in Logan, Friday, January the 19th, 9 a.m. to 3 p.m., Council Bluffs Public Library, 400 Willow Avenue in Council Bluffs. Also on Friday, January the 19th, 11.30 a.m. to 5.30 p.m., CHI Health Mercy Hospital, 800 Mercy Drive in Council Bluffs. On Thursday, January the 25th, at nine, from 9 a.m. to 3 p.m., at Lakin Community Center, 61321, 315th Street in Malvern. On Friday, January the 26th, 9 a.m. to 3 p.m., High V Madison Avenue, 1745 Madison Avenue in Council Bluffs. And Monday, January the 29th, from 9 a.m. to 2 p.m., Council Bluffs Public Library, 400 Willow Avenue in Council Bluffs. 
Also from the front page of the Nonpareil, turnout at Kern leaves precinct scrambling for chairs, ballots. This is written by Dave Goldblitz of the Nonpareil. After a late start due to technical problems, no one could hear the precinct captain until someone found a megaphone. Caucus night went as smoothly as an icy Iowa thoroughfare in mid-January at Kern Middle School. About 150 people, including a handful of children too young to vote, packed into the school gym to support their candidate of choice by checking a box on a ballot or writing their candidate's name on a slip of paper. Turnout was so much greater than expected that precinct officials ran out of ballots, so some had to vote on sheets of paper torn from a legal pad. Marianne Hanusa, the precinct captain, anticipated about 100 voters would show up. Organizers had to scramble at the last minute to find more chairs. You never quite know, and, of course, the weather could have thrown a potential wrench into it, she said, but it's a good turnout. People are excited. They braved the cold to come out here, so for those who are able to show up tonight, it'll be a good evening. There were a total of 135 ballots cast in Council Bluffs Precinct 8. Nearly half of the votes, 64, went to former President Donald Trump. Former U.N. Ambassador Nikki Haley received the second most votes with 36, while Florida Governor Ron DeSantis received 26 and Vivek Ramaswamy received 9. Three other candidates also tracked by the Iowa Republican Party, Texas pastor and businessman Ryan Binkley, former New Jersey Governor Chris Christie, and former Arkansas Governor Asa Hutchinson, each received zero votes. Christie withdrew from the race on January 10th, but he remained on the Iowa GOP caucus ballot. One voter, 88-year-old Janice Warm, arrived at the school bill bundled against the cold and walking with a cane. Warm is a diehard Trump supporter, and she voted for him in 2016, 2020, and during the 2024 caucuses because of what he accomplished when he was president. We need to get that back again, she said. Hannity had a list that he checked off when Trump was first in office, and he said it was like he didn't trust him. He said, I'm going to hold you to all these things. And every time his show started, he brought the list out, and now he needs to get that list out again and say, now these are the things that Biden took away from us. Warm said that she has never cooled in her support of the former president. She didn't even consider other candidates. I wasn't open, she said. I just want him back. Another voter, Debbie Alleman, said she was backing Haley this time around. We need a change, Alleman said. We need a fresh start. Jerry Potter echoed Alleman, saying that the county needs somebody new in the White House. He previously voted for Trump in 2016 and Biden in 2020. It's like the worst of evils, you know what I mean, Potter said. Trump? Biden, Nikki, she just sounds fresh and new. A couple of days ago, Michael Miller, who supported Trump in both 2016 and 2020, was leading toward supporting Haley, but over the weekend, he had a change of heart. It just seems like DeSantis might be a better, solid answer for what I'm looking for, Miller said. I'm looking for somebody that's proven to stand behind what they say they're going to do, not just lip service, but actually do what they say they're going to do. I'm looking for a strong southern border, looking for somebody that's strong on our education, that sort of thing. Now here's an article entitled Takeaways from Iowa Caucuses. 
Trump leads GOP rightward march, immigration a key issue for voters. This is written by Nicholas Riccardi and Brian Sludaisko of the Associated Press. Donald Trump's iron grip on the Republican Party has been clear since the day he announced he would make another run for the White House 14 months ago. It can be seen in the party's ideological shift even further to the right on cultural issues and especially on immigration policy. Iowa Republicans were a clear reflection of that on Monday night, delivering the former president an emphatic victory. They channeled his anger and his view that basically everything President Joe Biden has done has been a disaster. About 9 in 10 voters said they want upheaval or substantial change in how the government operates, according to AP VoteCast, a survey of more than 1,500 voters who said they planned to take part in the caucuses. As clear-cut as his win was, though, Iowa has not historically played the role of kingmaker in the Republican nominating process. New Hampshire's voters don't take their cues from Iowa. Here are some key takeaways. An incumbent campaign. This was the least suspenseful Iowa caucus in modern memory because Trump has essentially been running as an incumbent president. He traveled sparingly to the state, holding a modest number of rallies. He spurned candidate debates. He chose to appear at court hearings as a defendant in his legal cases in New York and Washington rather than speak to Iowa voters in the final days before the voting. The former president, who remains the party's dominant favorite, clearly wants to move on to the general election as quickly as possible. But Iowa winnows the field more than it determines the winner twists and turns ahead. Inevitable can be a dangerous word, especially in New Hampshire, which holds its primary January the 23rd. New Hampshire has famously delivered upsets in both parties. Former South Carolina Governor Nikki Haley quipped that New Hampshire corrects Iowa. George W. Bush felt New Hampshire's sting in 2000 when former Senator John McCain defeated him. So did former Vice President Walter Mondale when then-Senator Gary Hart of Colorado scored an upset in the Democratic race in 1984. With its more moderate, educated electorate, New Hampshire presents Trump's rivals with possibly their best opportunity to slow his march. Haley is hoping for a win there, or at least a very strong showing, as is Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, who edged Haley out for second place in Iowa, but trailed Trump by about 30 points. After that comes a weird political lull, with the next major competitive race in South Carolina on February the 24th. But plenty can happen during that time. The U.S. Supreme Court on February 8th is scheduled to hear arguments in a case challenging whether a constitutional clause banning those who engage in insurrection from holding office applies to Trump. The high court may also weigh in on whether presidential immunity protects Trump from federal charges for trying to overturn his 2020 election loss. The criminal trial in that case is scheduled to start on March 5th, Super Tuesday, when 14 states vote in the presidential nominating process. Trump's strength among Republican voters is beyond dispute, but the road is long and could be bumpy. It's not the economy. Iowans had something on their minds, but it wasn't jobs, taxes, or business regulations. About 4 in 10 caucus-goers said immigration was their top issue, compared to 1 in 3 picking the economy, according to VoteCast. 
Other priorities, like foreign policy, energy, and abortion, ranked even lower. About two-thirds of caucus goers said they felt their finances were holding steady or improving, but the voters still want major changes. Three in ten want a total upheaval of how the federal government runs, while another six in ten want substantial changes. Additionally, Trump faces multiple criminal charges. Six in ten caucus goers don't have confidence in the U.S. legal system. It, it adds up to a portrait of a slice of the electorate eager, eager to challenge core democratic institutions in the U.S. DeSantis's dismal return on investment. Flush with more than $100 million in cash and fresh off a blowout re-election victory, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis entered the 2024 Republican presidential contest, projecting himself as the heir to a MAGA political brand that diminished Trump could no longer effectively carry. Reality soon intruded. Eight months and tens of millions of dollars later, DeSantis posed little threat to the former president in Iowa. Still, he vowed to continue his campaign and said he had punched his ticket out of Iowa with his second-place finish. Despite more than $55 million in pro-DeSantis advertising spending, the Florida governor only narrowly bested Haley. Ramaswamy exits. Abrasive, often grating, and very online, Vivek Ramaswamy's chaotic bid for the White House has come across as a millennial distillation of Trump's Make America Great Again political movement. Ramaswamy rapped along to verses of Eminem, delighted in trolling his rivals, and often sought to out-Trump Trump with his brash rhetoric. That performative aspect helped the wealthy 38-year-old entrepreneur gain considerable attention in the early days of the Republican White House contest, but it also proved to wear thin. As returns from Iowa ca Iowa's caucus posted, Ramaswamy seemed unlikely to reach double digits, and he suspended his campaign. Punishing Deep Freeze Continues to Grip U.S. It's written by Carolyn Thompson, Matthew Brown, and Valerie Gonzalez of the Associated Press, and the dateline is Buffalo, New York. Major cities on the East Coast broke a snow drought of sorts Tuesday, while other parts of the U.S. struggled with perilous, perilously low temperatures that closed schools, cut power, and likely contributed to deaths by cold exposure. New York City's Central Park recorded more than an inch of snow in a single day for the first time since 2022, the National Weather Service said, while Philadelphia's 715-day streak without a similar amount ended too. Slightly more than 100,000 U.S. homes and businesses were without power, most of them in Oregon, Texas, and Louisiana, after widespread outages that started last weekend. Portland General Electric warned that the threat of freezing rain could delay restoration efforts. Schools were closed for students in Portland and other major cities, including Chicago, Detroit, Denver, Dallas, Houston, Memphis, Tennessee, and across New England, and in the Washington, D.C. region. Federal offices in and around the nation's capital were also closed as roughly two inches of snow hit the area. The storms and frigid temperatures affected everything from air travel to NFL playoff games to Iowa's presidential caucuses and were also the cause of severe deaths. 
At least four people in the Portland area died, including two people from suspected hypothermia. Another man was killed after a tree fell on his house and a woman died in a fire that spread from an open flame stove after a tree fell onto an RV. In Wisconsin, the deaths of three homeless people in the Milwaukee area were under investigation, with hypothermia the likely cause, officials said. A Kentucky State Police helicopter rescued four campers stranded atop Courthouse Rock in the Red River Gorge area on Monday, according to Powell County Search and Rescue, which said the call was one of the most dangerous rescues ever attempted in the gorge. The Asbury College students were in good spirits other than being cold, officials said. In Louisiana, state troopers worked all night to get motorists off bridges that had iced over, stranding drivers on the spans on Interstate 10 between Baton Rouge and Lafayette and Interstate 210 close to Lake Charles, Louisiana, state police said. Freezing rain and sleet was expected to continue across portions of the southeast. Winter storm warnings were in effect for Lawrence, Limestone, and Madison counties in Alabama and in Franklin County in Tennessee, southeast Arkansas, northeast Louisiana, and much of Mississippi. Moderate to heavy snowfall was expected into the Mid-Atlantic with winter weather advisories in effect from the Mid-Atlantic to New England, according to the National Weather Service. Another two to four inches of snow was expected in New York State, and six to eight inches of snow was expected in upper New England through Wednesday. In the Pacific Northwest, ice storm warnings were in effect through Wednesday morning. In parts of the Cascades into the northern Rockies, 15 to 28 inches of snow was possible. Another day of record cold temperatures was expected across much of the Rockies, Great Plains, and Midwest on Tuesday, with wind chills below minus 30, extending into the mid-Mississippi Valley. Frigid temperatures in the northeast didn't stop fans from heading out to cheer on the Buffalo Bills at a snow-covered Highmark Stadium in Orchard Park, New York. The Bills beat the Pittsburgh Steelers on Monday in an AFC wildcard playoff game that was delayed a day because of a storm that dumped more than two feet of snow on the region. And voters handed former President Donald Trump a win Monday night in the coldest first-in-the-nation Iowa caucuses on record. Temperatures dipped to minus three degrees in Des Moines, with the wind chill making it feel far colder. Air travelers across the country experienced delays and cancellations. The flight tracking service FlightAware said more than 1,300 cancellations were already reported by Tuesday morning on the East Coast. Temperatures are expected to moderate midweek, but a new surge of colder air is forecast to drop south over the northern plains and Midwest, reaching the deep south by the end of the week. Now from the Nation and World page... U.S. strikes Houthis again. Iran launches attacks in Pakistan as Iraq recalls its ambassador. This is written by Lolita C. Baldor and John Gambrell of the Associated Press, and the dateline is Washington. A barrage of U.S. coalition and militant attacks in the Middle East over the past five days are compounding U.S. fears that Israel's war on Hamas in Gaza could expand as massive military strikes failed to stall the assault on Red Sea shipping by Yemen-based Houthis. Even as the U.S. and allies pummeled more than two dozen Iran-backed Houthi locations on Friday in retaliation for attacks on ships, the Houthis have continued their maritime assaults. 
Tehran struck sites in Iraq and Syria, claiming to target an Israeli spy headquarters, then followed that Tuesday with reported missile and drone attacks in Pakistan. The chaotic wave of attacks and reprisals involving the United States, its allies, and foes suggested not only that last week's assault failed to deter deter the Houthis, but that the broader regional war that the U.S. has spent months trying to avoid was becoming closer to reality. Underscoring the gravity of the roiling situation, the Biden administration was expected to announce plans to redesignate the Houthis as global terrorists, according to people familiar with with the decision who requested anonymity. In a speech at the World Economic Forum in Davos, Switzerland, White House National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan warned that the expanding array of attacks mean that allies must be vigilant against the possibility that, in fact, rather than heading towards de-escalation, we are on a path of escalation that we have to manage. Ever since the devastating attack by Hamas on Israel on October 7th prompted a massive air and ground campaign by Israeli forces, the U.S. and other allies worried about it expanding to a broader regional war. According to U.S. Central Command, the U.S. launched a new strike against the Houthis on Tuesday, hitting four anti-ship ballistic missiles that were prepared to launch and presented an imminent threat to merchant and U.S. Navy ships in the region. While Iran arms and backs the Houthis, it's not been clear how much it helped plan or direct the attacks. Tehran launched its own assault on Israel's interests late Monday, firing missiles near the U.S. consulate in northern Iraq at what it said was a headquarters of Mossad, the Israeli intelligence agency. On Tuesday, Iran struck targets inside Pakistan, killing two innocent children and wounded three other people, the Pakistani government said. Iran described the targets as bases for the militant group Jaish al-Adl, state media reported. Next up is an article entitled, Israel Fights Militants in North. Qatar says it mediated a deal to get medical aid to hostages in Gaza. Palestinian militants battled Israeli forces in devastated northern Gaza and launched a barrage of rockets from farther south on Tuesday in a show of force more than 100 days into Israel's massive air and ground campaign against the tiny coastal enclave. The fighting in the north, which was the first target of Israel's offensive and where entire neighborhoods are pulverized, show how far Israel remains from achieving its goal of dismantling Hamas and returning scores of hostages captured in the October 7th attack that sparked the war. Gaza's humanitarian crisis is worsening, with 85% of the territory's 2.3 million Palestinians having fled their homes and UN agencies warning of mass starvation and disease. The conflict threatens to widen after the U.S. and Israel traded strikes with Iranian-backed groups across the region. Israel has vowed to crush Hamas's military and governing capabilities to ensure that the October 7th attack is never repeated. Militants stormed into Israel from Gaza that day, initiating a fight that left some 1,200 people dead and capturing about 250 people. With strong diplomatic and military support from the United States, Israel has resisted international calls for a ceasefire. 
Almost half of the hostages were released during a week-long truce in November, but more than 100 remain in captivity. In other developments, Qatar, the Persian Gulf nation that helped mediate the previous ceasefire, said late Tuesday that it brokered a deal between Israel and Hamas to deliver medicine to the hostages as well as additional aid to Palestinians in Gaza. Also on Tuesday, Senator Bernie Sanders, an independent from Vermont, forced a vote in the U.S. Senate on whether to investigate human rights abuses in the Israel-Hamas war, a step toward potentially limiting U.S. military aid to Israel as it attacks on Gaza grind past 100 days. Senators overwhelmingly rejected the effort, but the roll call vote revealed deepening unease among U.S. lawmakers over Israel's prosecution of the war against Hamas. In all, 11 senators joined Sanders in the procedural vote, mostly Democrats, while 72 opposed. Gaza's health ministry said Tuesday that the bodies of 158 people killed in Israeli strikes have been brought to hospitals in the past 24 hours. From Washington, lawmakers announced bipartisan tax cut effort. The chairman of the top tax policy committees in Congress announced a bipartisan agreement Tuesday to enhance the child tax credit and revive a variety of tax breaks for businesses, a combination designated to attract support from lawmakers of both parties. The roughly $78 billion in tax cuts would be offset by more quickly ending a tax break Congress approved during the COVID-19 pandemic that encouraged businesses to keep employees on their payroll. The agreement was announced by Senator Ron Wyden, the Democratic chair of the Senate Finance Committee, and Representative Jason Smith, the Republican chairman of the House Ways and Means Committee. In forging the agreement, Democratic negotiators were focused on boosting the child tax credit. The tax credit is $2,000 per child, but only $1,600 is refundable, which makes it available to parents who owe little to nothing in federal income taxes. The bill would incrementally increase the maximum refundable child tax credit to $1,800 for 2023 tax returns, $1,900 for the following year, and $2,000 for 2025 tax returns. Jury to decide penalty for Trump's defamation. Separate panel ruled he sexually abused columnist in New York. Donald Trump shook his head in disgust Tuesday as the judge in his New York defamation trial told prospective jurors that another jury already decided that the former president sexually abused columnist E. Jean Carroll in the 1990s. Fresh from a political win Monday in the Iowa caucuses, the Republican presidential frontrunner detoured to a Manhattan courtroom for what amounts to the penalty phase of a civil defamation lawsuit stemming from Carroll's claims he sexually attacked her in a department store dressing room. Nine jurors were selected for the trial, which Judge Louis A. Kaplan said is likely to last three to five days. Kaplan told prospective jurors the trial beginning Tuesday would focus only on how much money, if any, Trump must pay Carol for the comments he made about her while president in 2019. For purposes of the new trial, it already was determined that Mr. Trump did sexually assault Ms. Carol, Kaplan said. Trump lawyer Elena Haba told the judge Trump plans to testify. Kaplan previously rejected Trump's request to delay the trial a week. Under the Digest heading, new federal charges for Denver nightclub shooter. 
The shooter who killed five people and endangered the lives of over 40 others at an LGBTQ plus nightclub in Colorado Springs plans to plead guilty to new federal charges for hate crimes and firearm violations under an agreement that would allow the defendant to avoid the death penalty, according to court documents made public Tuesday. Anderson Aldrich, age 23, made a deal with prosecutors to plead guilty to 50 hate crime charges and 24 firearm violations, the document shows. Aldrich would get multiple life sentences in addition to a 190-year sentence under the plea agreement, which needs a judge's approval. Aldrich was sentenced to life in prison last June after pleading guilty to state charges of murder and 46 counts of attempted murder, one for each person at Club Q during the attack on November the 19th, 2022. Gilgo Beach suspect faces another charge. Dateline is Riverhead, New York. A New York architect charged in a string of slayings known as the Gilgo Beach Killings, was accused Tuesday in the death of a fourth woman, a Connecticut mother of two who vanished in 2007 and whose remains were found more than three years later along a coastal highway on Long Island. Rex Hewerman was formerly charged in the killing of Ma Maureen Brainerd Barnes months after having been labeled the prime suspect in her death when he was arrested in July in the death of three other women. He remained silent in court as his lawyer entered a not guilty plea on his behalf. He will continue to be held without bail until his next court date on February the 6th. House Republicans halted plans to hold Hunter Biden in contempt of Congress this week for defying a congressional subpoena citing negotiations with his attorneys that could end the standoff over his testimony. Christopher Waller, an influential member of the Federal Reserve Board of Governors, said Tuesday he is increasingly confident that inflation will continue falling this year back to the Fed's 2% target level after two years of spikes. A federal judge sided with the Biden administration Tuesday and blocked JetBlue Airways from buying Spirit Airlines, saying the $3.8 billion deal would reduce competition. JetBlue said it was considering whether to appeal. ABC News on Tuesday canceled the next Republican presidential debate after Nikki Haley said she wouldn't participate unless former President Donald Trump takes part in it, leaving Governor Ron DeSantis as the only candidate committed to Thursday's event in New Hampshire. From Davos, Ukrainian President Vladimir Zelensky came out swinging Tuesday against Russian leader Vladimir Putin at the World Economic Forum's annual meeting in Davos, Switzerland, urging political and business leaders in the West to help advance the peace process. And the Supreme Court on Tuesday allowed a court order to take effect that could loosen Apple's grip on its lucrative iPhone app store. The justices rejected Apple's appeal of lower court rulings that found some of Apple's app store rules constitute unfair constitution competition under the California law. You're listening to the Council Bluffs Daily Nonpareil on IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind. All material heard on IRIS is intended solely for the use of the blind and print disabled. I'm your reader, Scott Splavik. If you have any comments on this or any other IRIS program, please give us a call at area code 515-243-6833. Here's an article related to the coronavirus. It's entitled, Delayed Positivity, Why Your At-Home Test May Be Taking Longer to Show That You've Got COVID-19. 
With COVID-19 rising this winter, it's getting more complicated to discern whether you are infected. Dr. Elizabeth Hudson, Regional Chief of Infectious Disease at Kaiser Permanente Southern California, said she has noticed it's sometimes taking longer after the onset of symptoms for rapid tests to return a positive result. It used to be that someone might test positive for the coronavirus one or two days after the onset of symptoms using a rapid test, Hudson said. Now, positive results might not show up until the fourth day after symptoms start. What is causing the lag? The delay in accurate test results is probably a result of people having accumulated immunity from COVID-19 over the years, whether from vaccinations or previous infections, Hudson said. It's actually pushing back the time that people's COVID tests are coming up positive. So some people are testing at day one and day two and saying, oh, it's negative. I don't have COVID, Hudson said. If they probably tested themselves a couple of days later, there's a pretty good chance that it actually would turn out to be COVID. People who initially test negative for COVID-19 despite having symptoms and don't retest later could be getting a false sense of security that they don't have the illness when they actually do and are contagious, Hudson said. What are the recommendations for testing? Test immediately if you have symptoms of COVID-19, the U.S. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention says. If you take an at-home rapid test, also referred to as an antigen test, a positive result is usually reliable. But, but a negative test does not always mean you don't have COVID-19. It can take a few days for virus levels to reproduce in quantities high enough to be detected by a rapid test. If you test negative and have COVID symptoms, the CDC suggests taking a second test 48 hours later. In the meantime, because you are ill, officials say you should stay home and away from other people or mask up if you need to be around others. Another option is heading to your medical provider to take a PCR test, which generally means going into a medical facility and having your test processed by a lab. That test is much more sensitive, and that positive test result would come up sooner, Hudson said. But most people rely on taking at-home tests. And if that second at-home test is negative, experts recommend taking another one four days after the onset of symptoms. They, they should really, probably, on day four, retest themselves if they're doing the home antigen test, Hudson said. What if you're asymptomatic but have been exposed? You should get tested five days after you were last exposed to someone who was infected with COVID-19, the CDC says. If the test is negative, take another at-home test two days later or a PCR test as soon as you can. If the second at-home test result is negative, take a third at-home test two days after the second. Are there other times when it's helpful to test? Testing before an event or visiting someone who is at higher risk can be helpful, the CDC says. Sometimes a rapid test can detect an infection before symptoms begin. It's also possible a rapid test can detect an infection for someone who is asymptomatic. Test as close to the time of the event as possible, at least within one to two days, the agency says. If you use an antigen test, follow recommendations for repeat testing to be confident in a negative result. Where do we stand with COVID-19? 
coronavirus cases are up, but the number of people becoming seriously ill remains lower than last year when hospitals were deluged by a triple-demic of COVID-19, flu, and respiratory syncytial virus, or RSV. Nationally, there were 34,798 new coronavirus-positive hospital admissions for the week that ended December the 30th, a 20% jump over the prior week and the highest one-week total in nearly a year. Last winter peaked at 44,542 new hospital admissions for the week ending December 31st, 2022. Since October the 1st, the CDC has reported an average of about 1,400 COVID-19 deaths a week nationally. Over the same time last year, there were about 2,400 weekly COVID-19 deaths. How can you get a test? The U.S. government is allowing residents to order free at-home COVID tests through covidtests.gov. People are able to order four free at-home tests per household, and if they didn't already place an order between September the 25th and November the 19th, they're eligible for two separate orders of four tests. In general, doctors and health plans remain responsible for providing pre-COVID tests to patients assigned to them, according to the Los Angeles County Department of Public Health. At-home tests are on sale at pharmacies and online retailers. The CDC set up testinglocator.cdc.gov, a website that displays sites that offer free COVID-19 tests for uninsured people who are ill or have been exposed to the virus. I'm going to read today's humor article before moving on to sports. It's entitled, In the Pink and Purple. It's written by Jerry Zezema of the Tribune News Service. I may not be as tough as nails, but my nails are tough and colorful. I owe it all to the talented cosmetologists at Lily and Chloe's House of Beauty. Lily and Chloe happen to be my granddaughters. And the house where they made me beautiful is the one I live in with my wife, Sue, who is also beautiful, but was about to go out when the girls who were visiting for the day asked if they could paint their nails. Sue and our younger daughter, Lauren, the little beautician's beautiful mommy, were going shopping. Lauren's handsome husband, Guillaume, the girl's daddy, was going out too. I was in charge, and I ended up getting my nails painted, at no charge. Let me tell you, it was worth every penny. The spa opened in the kitchen, where Lily, Chloe, and yours truly sat at the table with a couple bottles of nail polish, one pink, the other purple. Sue got them from an upstairs bathroom, one of the many spots in the house where beauty products are kept none belonging to me. Be good for Poppy, Sue told the girls before she and Lauren left, and don't make a mess. It was an ominous warning. As soon as the door closed, Chloe asked me to paint her fingernails purple to match her dress. Let me show you how, said Chloe, who is a veteran of the cosmetological arts. Then she started painting the nails of her left hand. Lily, meanwhile, sat at the table with the bottle of pink polish in front of her. Don't do anything until Chloe and I are done, I said. Okay, Poppy, said Lily, who is younger than her sister but already has keen interest in beauty. That includes diamonds, her poor parents. Anyway, Chloe painted her nails perfectly. Since she is right-handed, she didn't want to use her left hand to paint the nails of her right hand, so I became her right-hand man. 
This may be a left-handed compliment, but I did a good job. I knew it when Chloe said, Good job, Poppy. Suddenly, Lily shrieked, I spilled my nail polish. Sure enough, she got the pink stuff all over her blue dance outfit, which for some reason she was wearing over her regular clothes. She also was wearing a ton of costume jewelry, including, she informed me, a diamond ring. I grabbed some paper towels and tried to get the polish off. I refrained, however, from using Windex. When it was obvious that my efforts were hopeless, Lily sat back down and said, Now paint my nails, Poppy. I did another good job. It's your turn, said Lily, announcing that she was going to paint my fingernails. She dipped a brush into the bottle of pink polish, or what was left of it, and smeared a gob onto my right thumbnail. I used a paper towel, or what was left of them, to wipe excess polish off the thumb itself. Then Lily dipped a brush into the bottle of purple polish and painted the nail on my right index finger. She alternated colors until I had a pink pinky. Now I'm going to do your left hand, said Lily, who repeated the process, except that she started with purple on my thumbnail and ended with the same color on my pinky. You look beautiful, Poppy, Lily gushed. Good job, Lily, declared Chloe, who went upstairs to give herself a beauty treatment with Sue's makeup. When Sue and Lauren got home, they marveled at my colorful nails. Oh my God, Susan exclaimed. I can't believe this, Lauren chimed in. What's the matter, I asked. Are you ladies jealous? Aside from failing to notice that Lily's chair was covered in nail polish, not all of which came off, I had a wonderful day at the spa. Next time, Poppy, Lily promised, I'll paint your toenails. Now we turn to the sports page. We'll start with this college basketball article entitled Back on Top, Reigning Champ UConn, number one, entering tough week of Big East play. It's written by Aaron Beard of the Associated Press. A week full of upsets helped reigning national champion Connecticut push to its first number one ranking in the Associated Press men's college basketball poll since 2009. The Huskies' first week at the top won't be easy either. UConn hosts number 18 Creighton on Wednesday to headline the week's AP Top 25 national schedule, then visits Villanova, which has wins against current-ranked teams North Carolina, Texas Techs, and Creighton on Saturday. UConn, with a record of 15 wins and two losses, has won five straight since falling at Seton Hall, a game that saw 7'2 sophomore Donovan Klingen go down to a foot injury. Coach Dan Hurley said after Sunday's win against Georgetown that Klingen is getting close to a return, saying he's not battling symptoms from multiple days of workouts. Klingen is averaging 13.9 points, 6.3 rebounds, and two blocks the only way he's out there versus Creighton is if this thing continues to progress and we feel like he has had enough practice time, Hurley said, adding that he'd likely see spurts off the bench when he first returns. The Big 12 has a national best eight teams in the AP Top 25, so the league dominates the slate of ranked versus ranked matchups for the week. That includes number 20 BYU, number 24 Iowa State, and number 25 Texas Tech in particular. The Cyclones and Red Raiders are two of five new teams into this week's poll, and they each have two games against ranked opponents this week. Iowa State visited BYU on Tuesday, then visits number 19 TCU, a third new entrant to Monday's poll from the Big 12 on Saturday. Texas Tech goes on the road to tussle with fifth-ranked Houston on Wednesday, then returns home to face BYU on Saturday. 
Number 13, Auburn, with a record of 14 wins and two losses, has won nine straight games since falling at Appalachian State in early December, including a 3-0 start in the Southeastern Conference. The Tigers' week includes a visit from number 22 Mississippi on Saturday, with Chris Beard's Rebels having lost only to Tennessee this season. Number two, Purdue gets another shot at handling the test of playing on the road with a high ranking. The Boilermakers lost last week at Nebraska to fall out of the number one ranking for Monday's poll. Coming off a home win against Penn State, Purdue went on the road Tuesday to face in-state Big Ten foe Indiana, then visits Iowa on Saturday. Last week's lineup of upsets knocked five teams out of the poll, including Gonzaga, for the first time since 2016 to end a 140-week streak of poll appearances. While that group lingers just outside the top 25, Seton Hall and Grand Canyon could be teams to watch going forward. The Pirates have home games against St. John's and Creighton to build some momentum toward potentially their first AP Top 25 appearance under second-year coach Shaheen Holloway. As for the Antelopes, their only loss came against South Carolina in November, and they've won 13 straight. They have a home game against Utah Valley on Thursday and a trip to Seattle on Saturday to stay unbeaten in the Western Athletic Conference. In NFL news, Philly legend calls it a career. Reports say Eagles center Jason Kelsey to retire after 13 seasons. Jason Kelsey stood on the sideline in tears as the final seconds ticked off in his likely final NFL game. Kelsey embraced his longtime offensive line coach. He removed his helmet once the game ended, a Philadelphia Eagles loss that completed a harrowing season-ending collapse, and extended his hand to his wife and his father in the stands. What Kelsey knew then, what the gregarious center couldn't bring himself to say when he declined to speak to the media in the aftermath of of the defeat, was that his football career was over. This 36-year-old Kelsey has wavered on retirement over the last few seasons. Coach Nick Sirianni added to Kelsey's lore by shipping a keg of beer to the center's home to entice him to return in 2022. He has been the heart of the Philadelphia Eagles, a hero on the Philadelphia sports scene, a Super Bowl champion, but after 13 seasons, 156 straight starts, and six all-pro team selections, Kelsey has told teammates he intends to retire. Three people informed of the decision told the Associated Press. They spoke to the AP on condition of anonymity Tuesday out of respect for Kelsey's decision, which he has not yet made public. The GOAT! Appreciate you big time, Eagles cornerback Darius Slay Jr. wrote on social media. Kelsey could explain his decision as early as Wednesday when the next episode of the New Heights podcast he co-hosts with his brother, Kansas City Chiefs tight end Travis Kelsey, boyfriend of pop star Taylor Swift, was expected to drop. The brothers played each other last season in the Super Bowl that was won by the Chiefs. I love him. Yeah, obviously we're not there at that position yet, ready to talk about that, but he's special and I love him. Eagles coach Nick Sirianni said after a 32-9 loss to Tampa Bay, he's one of the most special guys I've been around. He's always got a place here and always want him to play. The burly, bushy-haired, and bearded Kelsey has been a stalwart of the offensive line since he was a sixth-round pick in the 2011 draft out of Cincinnati. 
He turned into an Ironman after he missed most of the 2012 season with a partially torn MCL and torn ACL. Kelsey's credentials go far beyond football. He's a podcast co-host. He was the subject of the Kelsey documentary. Heck, Kelsey was even named one of People Magazine's Sexiest Men for 2023 alongside Timothy Chalamet and Jamie Foxx. He's a legend in the city, really in the league, said Eagles quarterback Hertz. I don't want to do a disservice to him and the things he's been able to do and overcome. His journey to where he is now didn't come easy. It's been a long, long time coming for him, and every year since I've been here, it's been, are you going to come back? But he knows how much I love and appreciate him. He knows how much I've learned from him. He'll forever have a special place in my heart. In other NFL news, new Washington general manager Adam Peters is already at work trying to find a coach. A group led by Peters and owner Josh Harris is expected to hire a replacement for Ron Rivera within the next few weeks. Detroit Lions offensive coordinator Ben Johnson and defensive coordinator Aaron Glenn and Baltimore Ravens assistant coach Mike McDonald are among the likeliest candidates. The Seahawks began the process of finding Pete Carroll's replacement Wednesday when Seattle General Manager John Schneider is expected to have the first of several virtual interviews. Dallas Defensive Coordinator Dan Quinn, Detroit Offensive Coordinator Ben Johnson, and Los Angeles Rams Defensive Coordinator Raheem Morris are expected to interview for the job. The New Orleans Saints fired offensive coordinator Pete Carmichael Jr. along with senior offensive assistant Bob Bicknell and receivers coach Cody Burns. Coach Dennis Allen said the changes were necessary to move forward. The Saints ranked 14th overall in yards per game, but the offense often stagnated in critical situations during the first 12 games of the season. New York Giants hired Joel Thomas as its new running backs coach and Aaron Wellman as its executive director of player performance. The team announced the appointments Tuesday, the second and third hires, since Brian Dable took up, shook up his staff after missing the playoffs with a 6-11 and record. And Mother Nature might not be through complicating Buffalo's playoff schedule. Coach Sean McDermott said the team, for now, is still scheduled to practice on Wednesday and Thursday while monitoring a forecast that projects dumping nearly two feet of snow. Here's some scores from around the men's college basketball scene. First, Kaluma helps Kansas State rally past number 9 Baylor in overtime. Dateline Manhattan, Kansas. Arthur Kaluma converted a four-point play to give Kansas State the lead with 20 seconds left in overtime, and Tyler Perry added a pair of free throws with 6.9 seconds to go, helping the Wildcats beat number 9 Baylor 68-64 on Tuesday night. The Wildcats were trailing 64-59 with just over a minute left when R.J. Jones buried a three-pointer from the corner to give them a chance. And when Ray Jay Dennis missed a driving layup at the other end for the Bears. Kaluma managed to swish a three of his own while getting fouled by Baylor freshman Jacoby Walter. After making his free throw, Langston Love missed an open three-pointer that would have given Baylor the lead. Perry was fouled after securing the rebound, and his two foul shots after he missed one late in regulation put the game away. Perry and Cam Carter finished with 18 points apiece for the Wildcats. Kaluma had 12. 
Love had 15 points, and Jalen Bridges scored 11 to lead the Bears, who were just 5 for 28 from beyond the arc. Walter was held to 8 points on 3 for 11 shooting, and Ray J. Dennis managed 7 on 2 for 15 effort. Number 2, Purdue 87, Indiana 66. Zach Eady had 33 points and 14 rebounds as Purdue rolled past in-state rival Indiana. Eady was 11-23 from the field and 11-12 for 12 at the free throw line to help the Boilermakers win at Assembly Hall for the first time in three seasons. Trey Galloway led the Hoosiers with 17 points. Indiana swept last season's series and had won three of the previous four meetings. Number three, Kansas 90, Oklahoma State 66. Hunter Dickinson had 21 points and 7 rebounds, and Kansas rolled to a victory at Oklahoma State. The Jayhawks shot 62% and never trailed. Bryce Thompson led the Cowboys with 20 points. He surpassed 1,000 career points after entering the night with 986. Number 6, Tennessee, 85, Florida, 66. Dalton Connect scored a career-high 39 points and had 8 rebounds to lead Tennessee past Florida. Jonas Idu had 19 points and a team-high 10 rebounds to help the Volunteers win their 12th straight at home. Connect averaged 32 points in two games last week as he captured SEC Co-Player of the Week honors. The game started two hours early because of dangerous weather conditions. Penn State 87, number 11 Wisconsin 83. Kanye Clary scored 27 points and Ace Baldwin Jr. added 20 and Penn State beat visiting Wisconsin for its first win over an AP Top 25 team under coach Mike Rhodes. A.J. Storr scored 23 points for the Badgers who had their six-game winning streak snapped after a sloppy start. Cincinnati 81, number 19 TCU 77 in overtime. Dan Skillings Jr. go-ahead layup with 22 seconds left in overtime lifted Cincinnati over visiting TCU. Day-Day Thomas led the Bearcats with 21 points. Trevian Tennyson scored 17 for the Horned Frogs. Number 20, BYU 87. Number 24, Iowa State 72. Spencer Johnson scored a career-high 28 points to lead BYU over visiting Iowa State. Johnson shocked 62% from the field and also had nine rebounds and five assists for the Cougars. Keyshawn Gilbert led the Cyclones with 16 points. Number 21, Dayton, 70. St. Louis, 65. Deron Holmes, the second, scored 25 of his 29 points in the second half and grabbed 14 rebounds to help Dayton beat visiting St. Louis for its 11th straight victory. We'll finish up the Daily Nonpareil today with the Ask Amy column. It's entitled, Daughter Threatens to Alienate Entire Family. Dear Amy, I'm a woman in my 70s. My slightly older partner, James, and I are both retired university professors who met after our respective spouses died. We've been together for almost seven years and have made each other happy, which is a great blessing. James has three children, the eldest of whom is a daughter. She has made it clear that she doesn't like me in her dad's life. She either ignores me completely when the entire family gets together or she makes snarky and unkind remarks to me. At Thanksgiving at her house, she completely ignored both her father and me. Somehow that did it for me and I told James that I'd had enough and I wasn't going back, but that I would never stand between him and his family. 
He decided that he, too, was unhappy with her behavior and said he'd rather be with me than put up with her. I reached out to the daughter and said it would be nice if we could just get together to talk and clear the air. I have had no response from her. It would be easy to ignore all this, but I am afraid that she will now blame me for alienating her dad from the family and the situation could potentially get worse. I believe that these things can be discussed rationally, but without her willingness to respond to my outreach, I don't know what else I should do. I would appreciate your thoughts. Signed, Struggling. Dear Struggling, you've made a rational and proportional choice to stay away from this particular daughter. Your partner's choice is more complicated in part because he has other children. If you both stay away from all family gatherings, then his eldest would succeed in alienating this father from all of his children, and yes, you would be blamed. It is sophisticated but somewhat lopsided for you to reach out to this daughter offering to talk this through. Where is her father? This rude daughter who is looking for reasons not to like you might take your choice to contact her instead of her father doing so as evidence that you are controlling him. This, of course, is the opposite of your intention. I think it's vital that James and you continue with fulsome relationships with his other daughters. He did not, he, not you, should contact his daughter and describe his concern and bewilderment over her behavior. He should tell her that he loves her and he wants a positive relationship with her and invite her to communicate openly and honestly. He should also state that you and he are happy and that you are good to and for one another. That brings us to the end of today's reading of the Council Bluffs Daily Nonpareil for Wednesday, January 17, 2024. I'm your reader, Scott Splavik. Thanks for sharing your time with IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind.